0: chapter 31 of the book. So I want to encourage you to turn there and stand as we read this chapter together. It's a very logical transition between the two books. It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened the body to the wall of Shan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and feasted, or fasted, I should say, seven days. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, these are hard words, as we see the consequences that themselves out in the life of Saul and the people following him. And Lord, we've been watching Saul for these many chapters, and and we've seen these things developing and and coming, and yet still hard as we see the downfall of this man. And I pray that as we read these words, we would help to understand, you would help us through your spirit to know how not only these apply to us, but how we should understand them in the light of Christ. And I pray for your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage begins with the statement, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And I'm reminded by how much fighting has been in this book. In 1 Samuel and it's really just a continuation of the fighting that we saw when we covered the book of Judges, isn't it? Just battle after battle, war after war with one people or another. And in fact, as we move into the first chapters of 2 Samuel and the transition from Saul as king to David as king, we find described in those chapters a civil war that took place in Israel as the people of Judah followed David, whom they anointed as king in Hebron, while the rest of the country followed Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And it ends up being a seven-year conflict. We see it from various angles throughout chapters 1 through 5 in 2 Samuel. And ultimately, I would say the first five chapters of the book of 2 Samuel are summed up quite nicely by a passage right here in 2 Samuel 3.1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. You might ask, is, is 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, is it just a bunch of battle summaries, an account of who fought whom and when and who won? And for that matter, if you were to take a step back and look at the Bible as a whole, you'd begin to realize how much the theme of warfare is actually throughout the pages of Scripture. All the pages of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, even God is, is described as a great warrior God who is a consuming fire and who is the mighty captain of the hosts of heaven. And we look at a passage like this one in Deuteronomy 7 where we read, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous, more mighty than you are, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, Then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters or sons to them or take them for your sons, for they would take away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them you shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire, for you are a people that is holy to the Lord your God. And so when we remember that Deuteronomy and, and the whole Exodus is the background of First and Second Samuel, we realize Israel was told from the very beginning to expect war. In fact, they were told that God would use the nation of Israel as his instrument of judgment against the nations that occupied Canaan. So how does that apply to our passage? Well, these battles with the Philistines are about God's justice. They're a comment on sin and holiness. The rise and exaltation of David's house over Saul's house in 2 Samuel 1 through 5 is a picture of the reign and power of Christ over the power of sin and the world and death. And what we learn from the Bible is that war taking place in the physical and spiritual realms has been waged since the garden, it's been waged since Adam and Eve. And it continues to be waged, and it will be waged until every enemy is made a footstool at the feet of King Jesus. And my last statement wouldn't resonate well with a lot of people. After all, we live in an age of tolerance. At least Americans like to think they do, despite the fact that Russia is massing at the Ukrainian border, and North Korea threatens to obliterate the evil demon the United States, and China is, you know multiplying its nuclear arsenal. My statement particularly doesn't sit well with people when they hear that God ordered battles that resulted over the course of the Old Testament in the deaths of millions of men, women, and children. Because of that, many Christians either simply disown whole portions of the Bible and even suggest that the God of the Old Testament is not the same as that of the New Testament, or they truly wrestle internally with how do I reconcile a God of grace and love with a God of war? Certainly can't envision him as the Lord of the armies of heaven, or as a warrior. So when it comes to warfare in the Bible, when it comes to a passage like today with 1 Samuel 31, kind of this graphic description of Saul and his his downfall and his death, it's important for us from the very beginning to understand that God's position was not that Israel's enemies were his enemies. He was not Israel's superhero. Okay? It wasn't the case that Whenever Israel went out and fought against those whom she perceived to be her enemy, that if they started feeling weak, that they could call on super God, right? To come and save the day. Quite the opposite is true, actually. Israel was to be an enemy to God's enemies. That's what we read in Deuteronomy 7. Before Israel ever encountered, before they ever went if finished the exodus, leaving through the desert, and entered into the land of Canaan, they were already told about the seven nations of the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. They were told that they were not to make a covenant with them. They were not to intermarry with those nations. Instead, they would wholly conquer them and remove them from the land. And in preparing for battle, not only did the Israelites have to discern whether the people that they encountered were God's enemies, but they had to purify themselves. Ask yourself the question, why? Why would they have to consecrate themselves before they went to battle? Before I answer the question... Think of for a moment about the example that we saw a few months ago in 1 Samuel 13 when King Saul is to lead the Israelites against the Philistines. It was his belief, Saul's belief, that the longer that they waited to attack, the better their chances would be. But then Saul began to see soldier after soldier begin to abandon the army, and so he began to thought otherwise. Well, maybe we need to get started because It's not about having a more strategic position. I'm not going to have an army to even fight with. And so Saul faces this dilemma. He knows that sacrifices have to be offered before war. He knows that he has to have the people consecrated to God. But he also knows that only a priest like Samuel could legitimately offer those sacrifices. But the longer that he waits... The less of an army that he has. Where is Samuel? You can see the wrestling, we saw it in his own heart and mind, and you'll remember that he grew impatient, eventually offers the sacrifices himself, and it was that act that removed God from, or removed Saul from God's favor. Now I go back to the point that God's people had to consecrate themselves before battle and then recognize that Saul's failure to do this properly removes him from God's favor. It underlines how important this aspect was. Why? Well, remember that Deuteronomy 7 said that God had chosen Israel for himself. He had invited the people to be a part of his kingdom, his purpose. They were to join him in the conflict that he has with sin. But the battle was God's battle. Israel was fighting for and in the presence of God and where God is, that is holy ground. And so his people must be consecrated. Why did they have to be purified? Because they had to recognize heart and mind, this is not my war. This is not my battle. And so we can understand why the Israelites always took the Ark of the Covenant into battle. For example, at Jericho, God gave Joshua the instructions to wage the battle, and central to that plan that he reveals is to march around the city for seven days, and at the head of the army is whom? Their general. Not Joshua, but Ark. At the head of their army is the ark, which was the mobile symbol of God's spiritual presence. And if you don't see Israel and later the church as God's army, you'll miss a lot of things. Think about the wanderings in the desert after leaving Egypt. The Bible describes them as a type of battle march. And although it took 40 years, the Israelites were... Marching to war against Canaan. In Numbers 2, it's interesting to read how God had the camp set up like a military camp. And God, the general, was at the center of the camp. And gathered closest around him were his most devoted warriors, the Levites, and the rest of the army was situated on every side, arranged by tribe. Some of you might say, well, it doesn't really sound necessarily like a military encampment. Maybe it's just the way things were arranged. But realize that every day when Israel moved, the ark was taken to the front of the march. And Moses would announce these words, Rise up, O God, and scatter your enemies. And then the march would be attended by prayer and music because God was going to battle with his army, the Israelites. And you say, why prayer and music? Because God treated warfare as a type of worship. And that may sound strange, I know, but realize that the only proper response to being in the presence of God and doing his work is to worship, even in the midst of battle. A great example of preparing for war and going to battle is found in what may be a familiar story for you, 2 Chronicles 20, where we read that after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the moonites I'm never sure how to pronounce that, Munites, I want to say moonites came across Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Engedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. And in the midst of the assembly, and he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat thus says the Lord to you Do not be afraid do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours but God's Do not be afraid do not be dismayed tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you and when they began to sing and praise the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who came against Judah, and so they were routed. Jehoshaphat was a good king, and being a good, a godly king did not remove crises from his kingdom, for we learn how messengers came to him, told him about this great multitude of people that were already at Engedi, which was only about twenty miles south of Jerusalem. They were marching to, to set siege against the capital city. And Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat needed to know: were these God's enemies? And if God intended to fight them. Or were these nations being used by God to discipline his rebellious people? Again, think about those questions. It's not about a strategic battle over territory, it's not about economic dominance, it's not about all kinds of reasons why people go to war and fight wars. Jehoshaphat needed to know is this God's enemy? And is he fighting against them this day and using us as his people, his instrument to do that? Or have we been sinful and is God sending this horde of people to us to discipline us? I hope that makes sense. And what I especially like, and that's why Fat seeks counsel from the Lord, it's why we see how the Spirit comes upon Jehaziel to tell them that the battle is not theirs but the Lord's. And what I especially like about the story is what we read there, that they went out singing and worshiping. And it's at that moment of their worship and their acknowledgement that this is God's battle and God was fighting that God routed the people. I didn't put it there, but verse 21 of this chapter says that there were specific people dressed in what was called holy attire who went before the army. And what did they shout? Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the way to fight about it. And it doesn't sound like what you expect a battle to involve. But that's because, again, we think about wars, like wars over territories, Russia versus the Ukraine, or religion, like the terrorist attacks on New York in 2001, or about economics and world dominance. But that is not what God's battles are about. And there's no simple formula to describe Israel's wars. Each battle recorded in the Old Testament often has unique characteristics, but one common theme runs through them, and that is clearly the consequence of God's people recognizing that the battle is the Lord's. It was not their own, and he was to get the glory, and the war was according to his purposes. It wasn't about money and retribution and jealousy and envy or ambition or proving who was stronger than whom. War was about God bringing judgment against sin and rescuing the oppressed. Now, why do I share those things with you? What do they have to do with 1 Samuel 31? Well, near the beginning of our study of 1 Samuel, we saw how Israel failed to realize those important truths. When they first went to battle, remember that, against the Philistines and didn't consult the Lord, didn't ask... Are these your enemies? Didn't ask if this was a war that God was going to fight. Instead, they treated the Ark of the Covenant as a magic talisman that they were going to bring into battle and and magically win because somehow that represented power on their side once they called upon it. And what did we see happen? They lost. They lost the battle. They lost lives. They lost the Ark. What do we see happening in 1 Samuel 31? The same things. Verse 2 tells us the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. Struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. Saul himself falls upon his own sword. And the Philistines come and live in the Israelite cities. Another day in the history of warfare, right? No. This isn't Saul's defeat is about his disobedience and rebellion against God. Had Saul trusted in the Lord, loved him with all his heart, God would have used Saul and the army to bring about his holy justice. Instead, Saul himself comes under the judgment of God and the discipline of God against his people. You see, the Lord loves to enable the weaker to overcome the stronger. He does. He, he could have easily done that through Saul. We saw that principle with David against Goliath. Right? You remember how the story ended. David passionately stepping forward to take on this arrogant infidel who defies what? The armies of the living God. You don't want to do that. You don't want to defy the armies of the living God. And David enters the battle no armor only a slingshot the contrast couldn't even can be more dramatic vulnerability some would say inexperience i'm not sure if that's necessarily true but certainly a youth versus a well armored and certainly experienced giant of a man but David comes out and says you come against me with sword and javelin but i come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. The God, listen, of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. All these gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So he fully understood, David did, that the the battle was God's. The victory was God's. The strength and power was God's. If Saul had learned that lesson, we would see a different thing in 1 Samuel 31. But instead, what we read in the earlier chapters is that every time Saul did happen to win a battle, and God was sometimes merciful in allowing the armies under Saul to be victorious, but every time Saul would would erect a new monument to himself in the valley where they won. But when a battle was over, what did we see? During the battle, worship. And when the battle was over, God expected worship, praise. As an example, we see this liturgy from Psalm 24. It used to be in a song we would sing. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You don't really understand the psalm until you understand why it was how it was used. This song was the liturgy of worship that took place when the ark was returned after a battle. The Levitical ark bearers, as they came carrying the ark on the poles, would come up to the gates of the city where the tabernacle was, and they would speak to the gatekeeper and say, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come back in. That's what that, that the psalm is about. And the gatekeeper knew who the Lord of glory was, knew what was going on, but the liturgy was there so that you have the whole army of, of Israel who has been praising and worshiped during the battle, now after the battle, hearing, Who is this King of glory? The what? King of glory. That is this Lord. He's just defeated this army. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. So lift up your heads and let the King of glory come back in. You see, if if we're going to be a people that shrink at this concept of God, as a warrior against sin, as commanding the battles of Israel and going out against his enemies, we will sadly lack a very important understanding of God. I think the problem is that many people as they think through this, they are they they think that the women and and children and men of Canaan were innocent. And so we think through the fact that it's really God wanting to command all of, of this bloodshed and this this pain, suffering. But that is not the Bible's view of humanity. The Bible declares that people are sinful from the moment of conception, that the Canaanite children were not only morally culpable, but they belonged to a wicked culture. We see in parts of the Old Testament actually how depraved and perverted The people's culture was, even to the point of offering their children as sacrifices to Molech, and God knew that if allowed to live without that sin being judged, two things would happen. One, God would not be seen as a holy, righteous judge, and two, that sin would corrupt and pollute the people of Israel. In fact, with regard to the seven nations of Canaan mentioned in Deuteronomy 7, the book of Joshua stresses that God had great patience towards them. The reason why the descendants of Abraham had to wait for 400 years was that the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. That's nearly ten generations. So, you know, by that time, Abraham's descendants have become slaves of Egypt. Why not go out sooner? Because God is long-suffering. He is patient. Sadly, when Israel was just as sinful as the other nations, as we see during Saul's reign, God didn't use them as instruments, nor did he just stand off and let two nations, Israel and Philistia, have out, while he decided to take a break because nobody's listening to him. Right? That's not God. When God's people, who are supposed to be holy and set apart end up being just like the other nations. He's going to use the other nations to discipline Israel. And that's what we see in 1 Samuel 31. I'll tell you this too. If we have difficulty with the wars of the Old Testament, then we'll have even more serious difficulties with the final judgment. Because in the final judgment, all those who don't follow Christ, non-believing men, women, and children won't just be killed, they will be thrown into, you know, they will be in hell. And so if we remove the portions of the Old Testament that describe God in judgment, we, we're going to have to really change and remove large portions of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we need to remember is that the punishment for sin is death. The lesson that rebellion against God leads to death is made clear in the Garden of Eden. And it was only because of God's extraordinary grace that Adam and Eve were not killed on the spot when they ate of the fruit of the tree. You know, one of the problems that we have is that we evaluate all these things by our own senses of morality. We are far more tolerant of all kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is God is holy. God is just. And we just are not moved in the same way by his holiness as we are by his love. We're not like David in the Psalms who cries out, Lord, rise up against your enemies. Bring down the wicked. Why does David do that? He does that because as much as he understands God's grace towards him as an individual and the love that God has for him, he also understands God's holiness. He understands what it means for man, sinful man to exalt himself in God's place to rebel against him, and for sin to go unpunished and unjudged. And so in this light, we shouldn't be amazed that God ordered the death of the Canaanites. But rather, we should stand in amazement that he lets any of us live. In a sense, the destruction of the Canaanites, which included the Philistines, was a preview of the final judgment. And the defeat of Israel is the lesson that God's people must learn. We must be a holy people. Not for ourselves, but for our God. Well, throughout 1 Samuel, we've done typically three things. We have asked what the passage originally meant, when it was written, why it was written. Then we've asked how to apply that perhaps in our lives. And then we've asked how Christ is revealed in the passage, and we haven't done that third thing yet. So where is Jesus in these various wars and battles? And I could simply answer, well, he's a, he's a member of the Trinity, so as a son of God, he commanded the wars that we see in the Old Testament, but for some that answer is not very satisfying. So let me use just a little bit of time together and the last here to address how Jesus fits in. To this whole discussion of, of war, God's judgment and justice. If you polled most professing Christians, you would find that they think that Jesus is a pacifist. After all, as the incarnated Son of God during his earthly ministry, who's the one that tells Saul to put, or Peter to put his sword away? It's Jesus. Who's the one who says, "I did not come to destroy but to fulfill Jesus? Jesus is the one who didn't lift a hand in his own defense. He's the one who said such things like turn the other cheek, who turns down the offer of the multitude to make him their king, and commanding general. And at first glance, Jesus does seem to be pacifistic, but first glances are rarely sufficient. If you look at Malachi 3.1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as the refiner and purifier of silver and will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Malachi, in this this moment is speaking of the sudden coming of the Lord to His temple. And that coming is going to be heralded by a messenger. And in the opening verses of the Gospel of Mark, Mark quotes this passage. And he applies the verse 1 to John the Baptist. And he says, John was that messenger who was told to prepare the way of the Lord. But he says even more. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written also in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send, because Isaiah said the same things, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And in that first chapter, Mark quotes both Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And the image is one of a procession in the desert in which this messenger is announcing to the people, the Lord is marching to his throne. Make straight the way of the Lord. He will defeat his foes. He's going to establish his rule. And Jesus would later say of this messenger, John the Baptist, that he was the new Elijah. That he came in the spirit of Elijah. And Elijah had been prophesied to reappear before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Malachi said the day of the Lord that he would come suddenly to his temple. Who could endure, Malachi asks, his coming? And so this is what the Bible says about Jesus being a pacifist. John the Baptist, in the manner of the great Elijah, stood in the midst of the wilderness at the Jordan, readying God's people for the approach of the divine king and warrior, Jesus, and there he warned that Jesus would bring judgment. After being baptized by John, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days of testing, and when he overcame his adversary, Satan, in the wilderness, Mark writes in chapter 1, Jesus came to Galilee saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. What happened in the desert? Jesus withstood Satan's temptation, and that signaled that God's victory was imminent. The demonic forces ruling this age were coming under judgment. And if you've ever wondered why the first nine chapters, for example, of Mark have so many references to Jesus' confrontation with demons, that's why. Because overcoming the spiritual forces of wickedness that ruled this world, conquering sin and death, that was the war that the Son of God fought in his first coming. There was nothing pacifistic about Jesus' earthly reign ministry. Every victory of Jesus was a sign that the kingdom was approaching nearer and nearer when it was about to burst upon humanity in full glory. Later, when Jesus sends out his disciples to preach out the gospel and cast out demons. Remember how I earlier described the 12 tribes encamped in battle array around the center, which was God and the tabernacle, and how every day they moved the ark to the front and said, Arise, O Lord, and scatter your enemies. Well, the 12 disciples were the parallel of the 12 tribes. And when Jesus sent them out, he was sending them into battle. Battle against the same spiritual foes that he conquered everywhere that he went. And I could speak of more. I could... I could tell you of the transfiguration where Jesus meets with Elijah and Moses who are the key figures that represent the law and the prophets and were involved in all of you know, God's mighty battles, right? I could tell you how Luke says that they discussed at the transfiguration the exodus. That's the word that's used that Jesus was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. I could speak of the triumphal entry of Jesus from Jericho into Jerusalem, where the imagery in the Gospels is of the king marching to his throne, and the people of God returning to Zion with joy and singing, much like we saw with Psalm 24. I could speak of how the people sang portions of Psalm 118, which was a royal psalm of thanksgiving, sung in celebration of military victory. I could speak of Jesus' answer to Pilate when he says that he was indeed a king and how he quotes Daniel chapter 7, which describes the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven to wage war against and rule over the kingdoms of men. But none of those compare with what we might call the final most crucial conflict of all the crucifixion. And when the Apostle Paul looks back at that moment, he writes in Colossians 2.13, he says this was a military victory over the demonic realm. And he writes how Jesus disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. See, describing Jesus as not warlike or pacifist is simply wrong. He was a indeed a mighty warrior, and his battles during his earthly ministry were primarily spiritual ones but don't miss the fact that one day his battles will also be physical too. He will come again and this time will bring judgment against all those who remain in rebellion against him. Who can read Revelation 19 and not come away with a vivid sense of Jesus as warrior king? May it be that you are not one of those in rebellion against Christ? Have no illusion about it. The Son of God has always been a warrior. He is a warrior. He will come again as one. He is not a passive sovereign upon his throne, wishing for people to love him. He has always expected his creation to acknowledge him as creator. And he has always brought judgment and justice to those who did not. 1 Samuel 31 may seem out of place or it may just seem like one more battle account, but as we see this big picture, including the call upon God's people to serve as his army, we are ultimately driven to grace. We must be thankful that God has Shown mercy to us. We must be thankful that God has then set us apart to be used as His instrument in His battles. We must be thankful that He has chosen not to set His war banner against us, but instead use us as His people. And like the Israelites, we are commanded to join in His struggle, His war against His enemies. And as God's soldiers, our task is now to extend the victory of God throughout the world. We really need to see our, our place as being that. It's too easy to be complacent, friends. It's too easy to just think that we're here to absorb the love and grace of God and hear a sermon and sing songs together and go back to our normal work we are also the army of God commanded to tear down strongholds. That's a New Testament passage. Take captive vain philosophies. And we must daily outfit ourselves for war. Ephesians even uses the analogy of military armor and weaponry. Because this theme permeates and pervades the scriptures. You really have to get rid of the Bible, I would argue. So, as the church, let us be prepared for battle. Let us consecrate ourselves to God by living holy lives. Let us offer our sacrifice of worship and prayer and singing prior to the battle, friends. I would argue that our time of worship here together as we sing and praise our God is both the same thing as the people as they marched in battle and also the same thing as when they returned from battle. It's as if we come here, we get our marching orders and we go out singing. We go out worshiping. As the army, and then we come back, we come back praising. Imagine if we came up to the doors and we said, Lift up your gates, oh doors of the Tongue Theater. <laughs> the King of Glory is coming in. He has come to his holy temple. And we must acknowledge God's presence in the battle against his enemy. Knowing that while we may often be in an inferior and weak position, yet the Word of God is our weapon. And when we triumph and the battle is over and sin is defeated and strongholds are taken down and vain philosophies are captured and souls are saved, we must give God the glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this hard subject of war. It's hard because it's so difficult for us to, to comprehend, but also because I feel that we've become in in some ways as Christians a bit squishy. We've so emphasized the love and grace of our Lord Jesus that we forget that He is also holy and just and that that is good. Lord, You will judge sin. You will not allow it to corrupt Your people. You will not allow Your own holy name to be trampled upon as men and women exalt themselves in Your place. You may be long-suffering for now, but you would not be God if you did not judge sin. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to wrestle with these things, ultimately with a balanced understanding from your word and with faith. If we don't fully understand everything, Lord, help us to remember, at the foundation of all things, you are good. And so, like a Lucy who who might not understand what it means for Aslan to fully be unsafe, yet he is good, may we have that same thought of you, Lord, our consuming fire, but yet, Lord, our Father. A mighty warrior, yet, Lord, one who loves to dwell with those who are broken of heart. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your mercies, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.